This podcast is brought to you by Friendly City Books, Columbus, Mississippi's independent bookstore. Learn more at FriendlyCityBooks.com. Caroline. Earlier this month, Mississippi author Exodus Octavia Brownlow joined Friendly City Books for a very special podcast interview recorded in front of a live audience at the bookstore. Mississippi poet and friend of Friendly City Books, C.T. Salazar, hosted the interview. Thank you to Exodus and C.T. for joining us for such an exciting event. We can't wait to see Exodus again at the 2023 Welty Symposium in October. Welcome to the Friendly City Books uh, podcast. I am C.T. Salazar. I'm not the normal host. I'm just co-hosting. I am so excited to introduce Exodus Brownlow, who's going to read for a little bit. Uh, her bio, Exodus Octavia Brownlow, is a writer, budding beekeeper, and rising seamstress currently residing in the enchanting pine tree forest of Black Hawk, Mississippi. She's a graduate of Mississippi Valley State University with a B.A. in English and Mississippi University for Women with an M.F.A. in Creative Writing. Exodus has been published or has forthcoming work with Electric Lit, West Branch, Denver Quarterly, Friction, and more. Her writing has been selected for Best Microfiction 2022 and 2021 and Wigleaf Top 50 for 2022. She is the recipient of the 2022 The Changing American South Fellowship at the Writers Colony at Derry Hollow and serves as an associate editor with Fractured Lit. Exodus has perfected the French seam by hand and unequivocally in love with the color green. You can find Exodus and more of her work at exodusoctaviabrownlow.com. Thank you, CT, for such a lovely welcome. And thank you all in the audience today for attending this reading. I truly appreciate it. I'm going to start off with, um, I've selected two pieces to read today. And the first piece that I'll be reading is in honor of my grandma, who is not here right now. She's in Greenwood, but I wanted to read this in her honor because I love her so very much. And this piece is called Stories for My Grandma's Body. In the present, my grandma, who has turned 77 today and who has birthed seven children during her lifetime, talks about the diet that she will go on on Monday. She talks about her diet to me and to anyone who will listen. She calls her children, her church friends. She, call, she tells the man who has come to fix her Wi-Fi about this diet as if it is something that she has already achieved. I've heard this enemy of a word too many times to count today. The way that she says it, diet, with extra emphasis on the die, concerns me. In the present, my grandma, who has turned 77 today, has decided that since it is her birthday, she will eat as she pleases. This will be her last hurrah, she says, her last time eating like this before starting her various series diet on Monday. When I dutifully bring her a second and third slice of cake, I hear whispers from her body, jumbled stories from the past. Her body tells me that it knows that I am a writer, that it knows that I will not forget their words and that I will utilize their tales in some way. 
I listen as stealthily as I can because my grandma is a God-fearing woman who doesn't believe in that hocus-pocus devil stuff. I fear being forcefully bathed in baptizing water and sleeping with Bibles underneath my pillow. So hiding behind my notebook, listening, I record their stories. Stories from her mind that has witnessed all the joys and tragedies that come with life and how despite everything, it has still remained sound. Stories from her breasts where babies have silked and slept and grew. From her heart that has loved her family the most and a husband that left this world before her. Stories from her hands that have both slapped against reluctant biscuit dough and against my rebellious brown bottom. When I look up, I see that she is studying me, not with suspicion, but rather with a small, intelligent smile. In the future, and on Monday, I will mix eight ounces of almond milk with two scoops of plant-based protein powder. This will be her breakfast and lunch, she says. She will drink plenty of water, she says. She will sleep in place of meals that she cannot eat, she does not say, but I already know. When I bring her this modest meal, the stories from her body and the various parts that it contains respond desperately to the sight of it as if it, is, if, as if it already senses the shift. Her body tells me that it has thought about this diet and that it has thought about dying. Her body tells me that it does not want to become a body that is temporary. I shut the words out, unable to listen anymore. Instead, I focus on my grandma and who she is and who she will become. For days, my grandma has talked about this diet and how she will lose all of the fat that her body holds and none of the things that she will gain. I want to be skinny, she says, naturally knowing my thoughts, peeping my questioning eyes as I watch her sip her shake. She pauses, clears her throat, almost coughing, but she steadies herself. I want to be well enough to travel again. I want to see my children. I want to see them in their own homes and not just when they come to visit me in mine. When we hear this, her body and I, a silence grows in place of our selfishness. We had thought of her wealth of weight as something formidable, as something that was not easy to perish and never as something that was holding her back. I listen for her approval of the health shake, and she ensures me that it is good. When she is done, I wash out the cup, and I put the almond milk where it can get the coldest. I place the plant-based protein powder where she can easily reach it. Back in the present, when crumbs of cake fall into my grandma's lap, I sweep them away with my hand. And while I do this, I am struck with visions of the past. I see a younger me a child, sleeping against the thighs of my grandma, feeling the flicks of the church fan against my face and the defense from the Mississippi heat. In the background, my mama says that I am too big to lay in her mother's lap, and my grandma tells her to leave me alone, that I am her big girl and that I can lay in her lap if I want to. In the background, the choir sings about how this world is not our true home, how this body is only temporary, and that there will be days that go beyond this earth in the great blue sky. As my grandma rocks me to sleep, I dream about slapping my hands against stubborn biscuit dough, feeding my grandma as she has done for me countless times. I dream about gifting my grandma with a big, beautiful body, one that will last forever.
Awesome. Um, I'm so glad that you read that essay in particular. But um, before we talk about anything else, let's. I just want to start simply. How are you? How are you today? What's on I, your mind? I'm. I'm always. It's such in such a good space when I'm able to share my work with others because um, we spend so much time with the work. Uh, it's ours for a long time, and I do cherish that time. But it's such a great feeling when I'm able to finish something and share it with my friends and family, and they're able to get something for it. So I feel pretty good right about now and, and just in a very happy space and a very grateful space as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, speaking of family, since that essay um, plays like your your grandmother is such a central part of it. And a, a lot of your writing, your family plays a big role in it. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about writing with um, so much of your family in mind and the way, the way you, the attention you give your family is, um, I don't know, as, as an aspirational writer, I am always in awe of how you write with family and um, how respectful and tender you are, but also honest. So I'd, I'd love to hear about yeah. that. Um, it's, it's just anytime I write about family, it feels very natural because I wouldn't be who I am and I wouldn't be where I am without family. And so when I write, particularly nonfiction, and I'm trying to to, to teach something, uh, for lack of a better phrase, uh, they're who I turn to. And so I see, I, I love to look at them and see who they are as individuals, because they're they're more than just my mom or my dad, my sister, my brother, my grandmother. They're their own person, too. And the things that they've learned, they've had to get there in their own right. So being able to share that means the world to me, because I'm always trying to just make things a little bit better for the next generation. And family is such a great place and, and a great group of people to turn to each and every time for that. Yeah. With thinking about the next generation too. Mm -hmm. I know that you're also such a writer of place and that Mississippi uh, is always going to be a big part of your writing. What, if you could expand on that just at all, what is, what is Mississippi to you and our generation, the past or the next generation? So I I say this several times and I say it because I mean it. Uh, Mississippi is very much so everything to me. Um, I don't I don't think there's any other place I'd rather live. And I think it's because we are so overlooked that a lot of a lot of what we're doing can grow from a much more genuine place. And in this space of people aren't looking at us anyway, so I might as well do the best that I can. So I everything that I write comes from this place because the older I get, the more treasures I find in the places and the people in towns like Columbus uh, that prior to coming to MUW, I didn't even know was so rich in like literary culture. And that's one of the reasons why I love Mississippi so much. It's just, there's just so much and so much love here and, and so many opportunities for growth, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I know this answer, but I'm sure the audience and everyone else listening wants to know, too, when you talk about the the literary tradition, mm-hmm. who are some of the writers that are informing your work and, and how? Yes, I, I love Keith Lehman. He's my favorite, hands down. I'm a huge fan of Donna Tartt just because she's able to write in such dense 
like densely gorgeous ways and I'm always trying to figure out like how is that possible because every page is just perfectly prose um huge fan of Zora Neale Hurston because she taught me to love the way that we speak and it's, it's such an honor to read her work because uh, we usually get judged for the dialect, dialects that we have, for the slang that we have. But she taught me that that, that the way that we speak is such an art uh, worthy of, of writing in and, and worthy of that honor. I, I have a million questions, but it's probably not a three-hour podcast. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do maybe lastly want to know what um, – now that this book, this essay collection, and your fiction chapbook mm-hmm. are in the world and readers are going to be coming to it, what is something that you're hoping people take away from your work after they read it? That is such an excellent question. For me, an excellent question, but a hard question to answer. Because when I write, I'm I'm hoping whatever the experiences are for those readers – uh, whether they find humor in it or just anything that inspires them to write as well or to think about um, who they are as people, I'm, I'm grateful either way. So I, I hope when you read my work, uh, you feel hopeful, you feel optimistic, even on tougher subjects. Um, I hope that you feel brave of, enough to speak adamantly for the rights that you deserve, for the happiness that you deserve. So I think those are like the takeaways, the big takeaways that I would love for my readers to uh, to hold close to them after completing the collection. Yeah, awesome. And maybe as like a last little closing, I, when you were, you know, um, you're just a starting out grad student at the MUW's MFA 2016, did you... Did you know this was on your horizon? What, no. what were your thoughts? I, I, you know, as a writer, I've always wanted to write books. I, I always knew that I would write books, but I am very much so a writer who focuses like page by page, piece by piece. So it's, it's it was it's very hard to think about all that I've gained over the last few years because. I wasn't thinking about that at all, not as sort of disrespect to myself or as something that I, as I thought, as thought of as unattainable, but because I love the work so much that all this other big stuff just didn't, didn't come to mind to me. But I think there's such a value in focusing in on the work and spending so much time with it, because when we love up on it as much as we can, this stuff that you're talking about, this what has come into my life, it just enters naturally. So, yeah, I, I think if I were able to go back to 2016 and let, like, younger Exodus know what's coming up, I don't know. I don't even know if I would have believed it. Um, so, yeah. Well, well, thank you for putting up with my questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for answering them. We have so many fun things happening at Friendly City Books. Make sure you never miss an event or sale by signing up for our email newsletter at FriendlyCityBooks.com. All right. So we've got some questions from the audience, and um, I'm kind of cheating by asking the first one, but I really wanted to ask you this question. We talked about it a little bit. Um, Exodus and I talked about this over email. 
she has this calling card, this penchant for very long titles. And so I want to read the titles of the two books. The essay collection is I'm Afraid That I Know Too Much About Myself Now to Go Back to Who I Knew Before. And Oh Lord, Who Will I Be After I've Known All That I Can? And then the short story collection is called Look at All the Little Hurts of These Newly Broken Lives and the Bittersweet, Sweet, and Bitter Loves. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about the, your approach to long titles in general, but also why were these two titles specifically chosen for these two books? Um, I I started like really falling in love with long titles after I wrote one of my first pieces with like a long title, and that was When It Gets Cold in the South, Only the Pumpernickel Survives. People were like crazy about their title, and it just sort of stuck with me because, I don't know, it's so hard to describe work in, in one word or two or three. Like, I'm always admiring writers who are able to do that because I can't. Um, but, yeah, I, I just decided to make it my thing and try to, and trying to be very delicate and um, to think a lot about how the title reflects on the piece in itself. So for the essay collection, when I was putting these uh, pieces together, I realized how much of, of it was discovery and how much I had grown from, for instance, the first piece that I wrote and the very last piece that I wrote that's in this collection and discovering so much about myself and wondering who would I become as I continue to grow, as I continue to work, um, and hopefully continue to live. And for the chapbook, I love writing uh, love stories. So the thing about the chapbook is that it's almost like you could say it's two collections in one book. So the first five pieces, look at all the little hurts of these newly broken lives, showcases of family together who are no longer a family. And then the other pieces that follow after that in the bittersweet sweet and bitter loves are just various love stories that fall within those categories of bittersweet, sweet, and, um, I missed one, bittersweet, sweet, and bitter. Okay. Yeah, there we go. So that's, that's how that came about. Um, I would just like to know what's been your most challenging piece to, to write and, and what was hard about it? Um, let me see. Let me take a little gander at my collection because that's a gravy. Probably the first one. Um, at my gynecologist, the ghost gloves go to the garbage and the two green girls become a little less green because it was such a vulnerable piece to write. But as I said before, like anytime I write something, I'm I'm really I'm really trying to to teach something. And for that, it was just sort of being very adamant that black women are so very deserving of doctors who respect them, who treat them with care, who handle them gently. And so it was hard because I'm like, oh, man, this is this is a lot. This is vulnerable. But then I thought about like the lesson they would teach and someone younger than me, like discovering, hey, like. People should respect me. People should treat me gently. And I got over that. But, yeah, that I would say that was probably the hardest piece to write. And if you're listening uh, and don't have the book in front of you, definitely pull up a picture of the essays 
uh, because the cover is so interesting. And I just want to know, how much of a role did you play in the way the book looks? I... Quite a bit of quite a bit because I I usually have an idea of like what I want my aesthetic to be, and so since this is my first nonfiction book and it is so very much about discovery, I wanted something playful. I wanted something that felt optimistic. Um, I know some of the essays are a little bit deeper and a little bit darker, but I didn't really want the cover to reflect it because even in darkness, there's still light to be held and, and worthy of receiving. So when you pick it up, I want you to feel a little bit happy when you see it because um, we're able to talk about these deeper, darker, more serious topics, but it's not our like final stop. So I wanted a book cover that also sort of reflected that, that idea. What are you reading right now or inspiring you? And, and what is, if you had to recommend one book to our listeners to read, what would that book be? Um, I just, I'm freshly off the experience of reading The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Um, as I said before, she's a, I, I love her so very much because she writes prose so like lovely. And um, she's in my studies just because I'm also trying to write, work on my first novel. And reading the greats is so very important in the experience because um, they just show you how it's done. So I just finished reading that and it was and I'm, I'm still thinking about it. And it's been about, you know, I want to say three or four weeks. And it's it's just it's been, I don't even have the words. She has the words. So if you read that, you'll figure it out. But if I had to recommend one book to read, definitely Zonia Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. It's just such a gorgeous book. And it's one of those books that I feel like everyone should read at every new decade as they come into their life. So I first read it when I was, I want to say 20. Um, the last time I read it, I was coming up on 30. So the next time I read it, I'll probably be 40. And it grows with you in so many ways. And she's just such a master that I can't help but hype her up. Anytime people are asking me who my favorite, who's one of my favorite writers, I'm going to bring her up every single time. Okay, so my ears perked up when you said that you were working on a, on a novel. Mm -hmm. What can you share about that? Oh, not much. I'm, I'm such a slow writer, respectfully. But... Um, so the, the the thing that I can share is that I just finished uh, working on a short story version of that novel to send to my agent because I wanted her to get an idea of what we were getting into. And I just, I literally sent that to her maybe, I want to say two days ago. She hasn't gotten back to me, but it's been a very exciting project to work on because it challenged me to actually think about what's the heart of the of the novel if I could just have a couple of pages and share it with anybody and say this is what my novel was is about uh what would that be so it's it's gonna focus on a lot of um southern uh well naturally uh southern lit but with sort of details of horror some details of uh romance as well and it is going to be set in 1896 so it's a big project um taking my time with it but i'm i, I feel like i'm gonna have a good time getting in there so we're we're we got a few years of work ahead of us but the the pieces and the collections that are close closer to being finished are the 
um, short story collections. So you'll get a little taste of more fiction in the, in those works and sooner. Hi. Hi. So you've mentioned that this is a work of discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, was there any time while you were writing these that you set out to write one thing and then found yourself very surprised to see something very different on the page when you finish? Yes, that happens. I feel like that happens every time I write because we have our own ideas of what it is going to be and what it should be. But then you sit down and sometimes those bones are there, those beginning bones, but it flows in sort of this natural direction. And I just, just letting it do its thing usually, uh, creates a much more honest piece, I feel like, a much more natural piece. So it, every time, every time I write, it always changes in ways that I don't anticipate, but I feel like that makes it fun because I don't want to know everything every time I set out to create. Thank you for your question. Hi, Exodus. Hello. Big <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing, I was trying to remember the titles uh, in this order, but I always remember when it gets cold in the South mm-hmm. and I call it a series because it's like a series to me. It's yes. one that comes out every year. And I do want to know um, what is your thought pattern behind setting out when it's cold in the South, because it's always some interesting follow up to it. And those are some of the shorter pieces that I do like to yes. read. I love working on the when it, when it gets cold in the South stories, because cold is such a big deal in the, in Mississippi. Like we can get, half an inch of snow and our whole state will shut down. So there's something sort of like mystical and magical about writing in that setting. Um, I, I tend to like, because it's fiction, I have the freedom to add in some elements that might be um, like fantasy or a little bit of horror. And just thinking about all the ways that we're just trying to survive in this climate that our state isn't just used to. We're not really equipped for like a lot of snow or ice or um, and some of us live in the country. So we can't just hop over to the store right quick. So I love working on those pieces so very much because um, we just have such funny reactions to weather, period. And it's a great um like opportunity to get like very creative and fun with it. So thank you for asking that question. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Exodus. Uh, You've been listening to Exodus Octavia Brownlow uh, read and take some incredible questions. Again, Exodus's essay collection is, I'm afraid that I know too much about myself now to go back to who I knew before. And oh Lord, who will I be after I've known all that I can? Um, thank you so much, Exodus. Thank you. I really appreciate the questions that you've asked me, this uh, coming down here and spending time with me and these lovely people and the audience in this work. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. Shout out to Friendly City Books Podcast yes, for letting us for sure. talk in a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Should never be allowed. Uh, okay. friends, it's Emily. Thanks for listening. Support Friendly City Books and other independent bookstores like us by shopping online at bookshop.org and libro.fm. Find us on social media at Friendly City Books. And don't forget to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. 
Happy reading!